what you do directly impacts what you see. And so the experience I have is going to be different from the experience you have, depending on what we do, which is a lot more true to life to the ways that the world works. If I speak up sooner, the situation gets better. If I don't speak up at all, the situation doesn't get better. And if I speak up later, it's better than not doing anything, but there's something I could have been done sooner. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 12 Geniuses. This is Don McPherson, your podcast host. In season two of the show, we've been exploring the theme of creativity and innovation. This week's guest is Morgan Mercer, CEO of Vantage Point. What Morgan and her team at Vantage Point are doing is using virtual reality to prevent sexual harassment and bullying while building more compassion and empathy in the workplace. It's an immersive experience that is far more engaging than traditional classroom training or watching a video. You can actually feel what the victim might be feeling. I got a demo of the Vantage Point training platform just before the interview with Morgan. I can honestly say that being in this virtual environment and watching someone get harassed and bullied triggered strong feelings of shock and disgust. I was quite surprised how real it felt. In this interview, Morgan talks about the innovative platform Vantage Point has created, her journey as a female entrepreneur, and what the future of virtual reality will be like. Morgan, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So maybe you could just talk about the problem or problems that Vantage Point is trying to solve within organizations. So we started with anti-sexual harassment training, but when we look at how we're going to expand out in the future, we're really looking at issues that impact society as a whole, really do focus on areas like, you know, impacting gender inequitable views or gender equity as a whole, et cetera, and, and really training areas where traditional training formats don't necessarily work. So really where the technology can be most applicable. The one thing I say is that what you don't want to do is take something that is flat flat format or whatever it may be and just move it to an immersive medium because that's not serving anyone. And so really when we look at where this technology can really come in and make something significantly more efficable, really actually teach a concept that's not being understood, it comes down to anything related to empathy, EQ, EI, you know, where a sense of presence, a sense of immersion, things like gaze, tonality, the contextual details truly do make up the experience or the learnings of the experience. And then secondary, anything where self-insight or the ability to assess behaviors is beneficial. So things like negotiation skills, that's something where I'm particularly passionate about it because women aren't taught to negotiate. But that being said, you know, it could be used for women and men and being able to actually leverage the technology to recognize tonality, sentiment, confidence, how frequently, you know, somebody how somebody positions their counter argument, et cetera, and actually look at that data at scale and use it to train people to negotiate better. That's something where you can do that with this technology, but you can't do that in person. So those are the areas that we're looking at. And you have started with sexual harassment training. Can you talk about the extent of the issue? Let's focus on the United States. Over the last year to two years, we've 
heard a lot about it in the news. 385 of Fortune 500 companies now have headquarters or offices located in states that are regulated to have this type of training. So essentially what we saw was Harvey Weinstein and, and a few other large names. And when I say a few, there were dozens and dozens and dozens broke headlines. And the one thing I always said before that was women don't speak out unless they're speaking out in unison. And that's really what we saw with the wave of Me Too. So then as you started to examine the training, the policies that we had in place, you started to see, okay, it's regulated at the state level for private sector, for public sector. Many states have it or or requirements around it. Regulated at the state level for the private sector, And a lot of states didn't have training requirements. And so as Me Too broke, you started to see this massive social movement. You started to see the breadth of it. So 81% of women have been sexually harassed. Reports have consistently gone up. 80% of women leave jobs within two years of reporting sexual harassment. The one thing we haven't yet quantified, which I particularly love to talk about, is the economic impact of that. Because when you think about women getting their first job, they're already not paid the same dollar to a man's dollar when you have promotional opportunities occurring at the two-year mark, right, and you have women leaving or or promotional opportunities occurring at every one-year mark, and you have women leaving their roles prior to their promotional opportunities or prior to their being able to receive a pay raise. And typically, when you negotiate your salary for the next job, you negotiate 15% or 20% or whatever it may have been of your previous salary you have to look at the overarching economic impact of that. And so that's something we haven't quantified. And when you look at the the non-quantifiable impacts, so some statistics in recruiting, 50% of employees won't, or over 50% of employees won't work for companies that have tarnished brand images, right? And then when you look at these companies that have these massive lawsuits, the impact on productivity, the impact on employee performance, the impact on media branding, Etc. It's just, it's this massive, massive issue that now companies are starting to take very seriously. Can you talk about what the the experience of the individual is when they're going through the training and how the training that you're delivering differentiates from traditional sexual harassment or other training that uh, would be comparable? So the one thing, just to preface, that I always say is that feelings are inherently subjective. They're deeply steeped in personal context. And so for me to try to describe a feeling, it's impossible. I encourage everybody to try and they'll see what I mean. We use photorealistic characters that will actually make eye contact with you to not only engage you in the experience, but recreate that feeling of you have an action, a a role that you can play here. So speak up or are you going to speak up? And so it's a pick and choose your own storyline ending for a simplified way to describe it. What you do directly impacts what you see. And so the experience I have is going to be different from the experience you have, depending on what we do, which is a lot more true to life to the ways that the world works. If I speak up sooner, the situation gets better. If I don't speak up at all, the situation doesn't get better. And if I speak up later, it's better than not doing anything, but there's something I could have been done sooner. You can't explain a feeling. And that's one of the biggest issues, I would say, of existing training mediums is that you're trying to explain a feeling and then trying to explain why it's wrong. And so for me to stand here and talk at you for two hours or for me to show you a video, not only can you discuss things like engagement, you're probably not paying attention. You could be sending off an email, talking to a colleague about lunch, physically present, mentally gone, zoning out, et cetera. But also assume you were paying attention. There is no shared understanding of feelings. 
because it's all explained to you versus felt by you. And so essentially what we do is we leverage the unique aspects of the medium to recreate or allow you to have a shared understanding of a feeling. And of course, everything's trauma-informed. We would never do a first-person simulation where we would put you in it. We would never do that. But what we will do is you'll be an observer. You'll see invasion of personal space, the tonality, people will look at you. And so that's what we're trying to teach people. And we're trying to train people around where they are versus assuming that every single person has a baseline level of understanding. What are some of the other trainings that you will provide? So we're looking at unconscious bias, inclusive leadership, et cetera. There, there have been a lot of requests for things like tough conversations, you know, stuff of that nature. I think, again, anything that inherently is steeped in feeling and shared perspective taking, that's my, my best way to describe it, is it creates a shared perspective taking or a shared understanding around a problem. Anything associated with that is an area that we're looking at. Well, I, I just went through the training and to me, it intuitively, I knew what the answers should be. Yeah. So how do you prevent people from gaming the system? Some of the experiences are a little bit more black and white. So the one that you went through is very traditional. We have some that are a little bit more gray area. So we explore things like power dynamics. You'll have colleague to colleague, male subordinate to female manager, incumbent male manager to newly minted female manager, et cetera. So we explore different power dynamics. We explore different social dynamics. So some will be office party, some will be conference room, some will be, you know what I mean? Like a lot of times in a conference room, things are inherently business or inherently assumed to be business professional. But when you move it to a social setting or a social professional setting, a lot of lines and boundaries can overlap in people's minds, especially when there's alcohol present. And so can we train people around that? And, and can we actually look at people's behaviors as they map out to the two situations and start to understand how they're thinking about the problem comprehensively as a whole at a higher level? And so that's what we'll do there. And then also, there are never completely correct or completely wrong answers. And again, it depends on the experience you're going through, but we'll always have numerous answers that are correct or wrong. And some of them aren't as obvious. And so some of them will be I don't really want to get involved in this. Let's, you know, leave it alone for right now. It doesn't seem serious. And that's something that people will say. And every single line actually in our experience has either come from a actual sexual harassment lawsuit or case study or an anecdotal story that we've heard from one of our subject matter experts that we've worked with who have worked with people on these cases. How are you protecting the individual and their privacy? So all data is anonymized and we'll never actually tie PII to any of the data around hesitation, empathy. What's PII? It's personally identifiable information. And so, for example, your name or your email address, we'll never tie that. I am a huge, huge advocate for building technology ethically. And so one of our company values is the heart of all we do as human. We're not, I don't ever want to get to the point where we are operating from a very traditional I wouldn't say corporate, but capitalist mindset where it's, you know, money drives our decisions because ultimately my premise is continue learning, continue development. And that comes with user protection, user privacy. Where do you see yourself in five years? So I see a tremendous opportunity here where, again, we haven't actually been able to explore the ways that people are thinking about some of these topics and some of these concepts. And so, of course, you know, we 
are really excited to expand into these different verticals, train around different areas. But one thing I'm very interested in and excited about is being able to educate corporations, HR practitioners, CNI practitioners, LMD practitioners as a whole about the insights that we're able to gather. So actually being able to publish some of the research, publish some of the studies, publish some of what we're learning so that we can push the needle forward as a whole rather than just using that internally to inform our product design. We are talking with the CEO of Vantage Point, Morgan Mercer. When we come back from this short break, Morgan is going to talk about the challenges of being a female entrepreneur in the largely male-dominated technology field. She will also share her thoughts on the future of virtual reality. Hi, everybody. This is your podcast host, Don McPherson. At 12 Geniuses, we write, report, and speak about the trends shaping the way we live and work. As we look toward entering a new decade, technologies like 3D printing, artificial intelligence, gene editing, and more and more sophisticated robots will continue to disrupt and change our society. If these trends are important to you, we invite you to follow us on social media. And to book me to speak at your next event, contact us at future at 12geniuses.com. We are back with Morgan Mercer. In this part of the interview, we will talk about Morgan's entrepreneurial journey and we'll explore the future of virtual reality, including how full-body haptic suits will stimulate our senses beyond just sight and sound. Could you talk a little bit about what inspired you to get into this field and what it's like for you in this field that's pretty heavily male-dominant? Growing up, I had a realization that anything I wanted would be a direct result of the work I put in. And so that gave me a really massive sense. Like I didn't, I didn't come from a really affluent family, whatever. So it gave me a really apparent sense of agency, of internal agency, internal control over my environment around me. And so I was always very adamant about pushing the boundaries, pushing the limitations. I was always like a very avid reader. I read every book on the Barnes and Noble's classic literature list when I was in high school for fun. Started teaching myself Russian for fun. That was just me. And so when I went to university, I was in Barnes and Noble's and I picked up a book and it was from zero to millionaire or something. I can't remember. It's like this orange book by Ryan Blair. And at the time, it was like my first book on entrepreneurship and business I had ever read. And I thought it was the coolest thing. It was like how he built a company from ground up, sold it for a million dollars, which at the time I was like, whoa, no way. <laughs> right? And it was just incredible reading about his journey and reading about him being able to wake up every single day, work on something he loves, build it from scratch, build the team, you know, all of the different aspects of it. I think risk is associated with everything you do in life. And I would say I've always trended towards being more of a risk taker because the way I view life is you should always do what makes you happy. And as you start to calibrate around those decisions, you learn more about yourself. So I went to work for a startup instead of going to a corporation. I had internships with the Department of Homeland Security. It was like a very, very prestigious like internship. And I, there were two people selected out of thousands. I turned it down. I had internship opportunities with like large digital agencies in New York, turned them down. I like went to work for a startup, right? Being paid next to nothing, hustling, working long hours, but I loved it because that's what aligned with me and my personality and where I find happiness. I view happiness as 
being able to see the impact of your actions. And so every single day I wake up, I feel like I'm doing something impactful to push the needle forward. And that makes me feel fulfilled no matter what's going on. What experience have you had being a female entrepreneur in the tech industry? So the one thing I'll say about that is it's all about perspective. On one hand, I could be like, I don't see that many people who look like me, or I'm in a room full of nobody who looks like me, or I'm part of 0.0006%, or I'm part of one of, I don't know, two dozen Black women, according to the last statistic I read on it, which hasn't been recently updated, but I'm sure it's still somewhat relevant, like two dozen Black women who have raised over a million dollars in venture funding, et cetera. And so I could look at that and be like, wow, you know, it's intense or like, this sucks. But the way I see it, actively reframing it is, it's really incredible that I get to be one of the ones pushing the needle forward. One of my personal missions is to inspire 2,000 women to enter STEM-related careers this year. And of course, you know, I'm going to increase that number every year. So for me to have the opportunities I do to inspire other women and minorities and women who are minorities to pass the baton forward, to teach, to educate, to be a face, that's incredible. To have the ear of so many influential or thoughtful or well-connected or open-minded white men is also incredible. And that to me is being able to sit with somebody who can make a difference in, in the form of promotion or investing or whatever it may be and actually share my perspective and share my experience, that will drive the needle forward. Well, thank you for doing that because I think it's, it is really important and you are a phenomenal example and a phenomenal role model for people who want to follow you. You relax into it. Eventually, it takes time. You relax into it. And I think, you know, again, the mindsets, it's really important to cultivate too because if you don't, then on the other side of it, it can seem very overwhelming. It can seem, I remember when I was first starting out, it did seem overwhelming when you would go to Crunchbase and every single founder you would see would be a man, every single investor you would see would be a man, right? And you would never see female founders. And if you did, they would always have male co-founders. And the only female founders you, you know, rarely saw, if you ever saw them, were in the B2C space, etc. I actually keynoted Athena Hacks. And that was what I talked about was it was as if women weren't consequential enough to build products for men, they could only build products for other women, whereas men could build products for men and women. And that's that's the reflection I had initially. But again, there are so many upsides of what I get to do that if I'm focusing on that and those feelings and that mindset, that's going to act as more of a hindrance than anything else to me being able to achieve what I want to achieve. And so really, it's looking at the flip side of it I'm so fortunate. I have so many amazing male allies in my corner who do listen to me and I can share my experiences with. Like That's incredible. The other thing I'll say though is that I have had to actively be self-aware of my own limiting beliefs, again, that are socialized, right? And so I love talking about statistics behind lack of gender equity and women dropping out of STEM, et cetera. But a lot of these beliefs are really socialized from birth. And so one thing I realized numerous things. But one thing I realized specifically that's front of mind right now is that women don't negotiate and that has true calculable business costs. And I realized that early on because I didn't negotiate things as well as I should or the same way I should have. And then you start to get comparatives of male counterparts and you're like, oh my God, this is insane. Like, 
what? <laughs> you know, at first you're like, what? How did you get that? And they're like, oh, well, I asked for it. <laughs> and you're, you're like, what? You can do that? Yeah. I'm like, you can do that. And, and then it's like, how do you do that? Because you never have learned. And then you learn by doing, and that's still expensive. And so now I made it a personal rule. I negotiate everything. It's just, it's a personal rule. And it like has nothing to do with, with the person or with the deal or with whatever. I just negotiate everything by default because what that does is it removes any likelihood or probability that I'll sit and question the what or the when or the if or feel bad about doing it. And it removes any level of my judgment about the situation and it just makes it something that is. I just always negotiate. And so I think that that's really important. No, it, it's very important. And I've noticed that too in my own business dealings that women women just don't. Yeah. And it may be stereotypical, but that's been my experience. And any woman I, I mentor, this is something that we talk about. Yeah. And like, I had no idea you could do it. Yes, you can. Yeah. You, you, you can ask for something. You can ask for a raise. And you shouldn't wait. You don't have to wait until no. the time is right. No. You don't have to wait until the perfect puzzle pieces fit together for, for somebody to give it to you. Because yep. I, I find that's something a lot of women do too. Where do you see the the next frontier for virtual reality in terms of different industries and how it can be applied? With the hardware updates that we're going to see over the next 10 years with things like full body haptic suits, like that's going to be incredible because you're going to enter a place where imagine you want to swim the coral reefs and understand what they looked like before global warming. <laughs> if, if you believe in global warming, I do. But if we want to swim the coral reefs beforehand, you can literally put on a full body haptic suit. You can feel the waves as they, you know, and, and you can leverage things like smell or, you know, eventually like the headsets will get to that point where it's a full body immersive experience. And that's incredible because I think that it also unlocks a world of education that a lot, you know, many communities specifically marginalized communities, but many communities and populations of people don't have access to. What you're talking about makes me think about how we can solve some other problems like intolerance in our country mm -hmm. and political, the political chasm, because we've seen, we've seen people become much more polarized toward the far left and toward the far right. Is, is this technology something that can help bring us together? You know, it's something that people are looking for actually being able to put somebody in the shoes of a prisoner or put somebody in the shoes of, you know, a black teenager on the streets in a very rural community and actually allow somebody to walk those shoes or step into that and feel how it feels to be on the other side of the table, you know, can create a shared sense of understanding or more empathy than currently exists and can move the needle away. And so I have had beliefs that I don't currently hold. And the reason why my belief systems have changed has been because I've had some sort of personal experience with the problem that has you know, caused me to question my views. And so being able to create that at scale is unlocked by this technology because then you no longer have necessarily the limiting barriers of the person sitting across the table doesn't look like me or I know that their beliefs don't align. I'm not going to listen. Is there a risk that virtual reality will be the next technology addiction? 
I think there's a risk with everything, but you have to look at who's building it. So the book I would recommend that you read, it's one of my favorite ones, is Hooked. And it's on the behavioral psychology of addictive and habit-forming technology products. And so there's a lot of behavioral psychology that goes into any technology design, right? Because that's what you're doing is you're looking at how a user's interacting with your technology and then you're optimizing for outputs. And so you're saying, okay, you know, if we put this here, then this person will retain this information. If we do this first, then they'll, they're more likely to complete the scenario. And so that can be beneficial when it comes to learning outcomes, but it's not beneficial when it comes to trying to, you know, especially if your monetization model or the ways that you retain your users come from frequency of use, come from how frequently viewed, et cetera, that's inherently not beneficial. And so I think it really comes down to looking at who is building the technology and how we're building it, because I think that's a risk with any type of technology, but I wouldn't say it's based on the technology necessarily. I would say it's based on humans and the way that we're wired and just cognitively how we perceive and interact with the world around us because you have addictions with substances as well. You have addictions with, there are so many different types of addictions we could explore. And so the answer is yes. And then the follow-up answer to that is we just need to be very cognizant in not building that into our technology and not building that into our monetization models, et cetera. I'll just add two other things, parental oversight and self-awareness. Parents can't be slapping up VR headset on a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old and allow them to be immersed in it for two, three, four hours a day. Right. But it's not in their best interest. Yeah. But rolling out things like you have on computers or on TVs. I remember my mom (laughs) used to do this for us growing up because I would always play video games and, you know, computer games all the time for hours. And she would be like, okay, parental control settings. You can only play for an hour a day. There you go. You know, but I'm sure we'll see it for for VR. Well, and you can run a company. Exactly. I know, right? (laughs) I'm happy she did it. Made me me read instead. (laughs) So Morgan, where can people learn more about you and about Vantage Point? So our website is www.tryvantagepoint.com. And my Twitter is at the T-H-E Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N Mercer, M-E-R-C-E-R. Okay, fantastic. And just a point of clarification, try is spelled T-R-Y. Yes. Okay, yep. fantastic. Morgan, thank you for being a genius. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Thanks also to the amazing team that makes this show possible. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Ryan Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are top-notch. To learn how 12 Geniuses can prepare leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, please go to 12geniuses.com. 